I still watch the movie. It's one of my favorites, Hoosiers. And I know most of you are familiar with that story because you watched the movie too. It's all about a team, a basketball team from a small town here in Indiana, and they make it all the way to state, and they end up winning the championship. Well, one of the things that fascinates me about that movie is how it was filmed. Uh, the producers of the movie wanted everything to be authentic. So even though there was a lot of pressure being put on them to shoot the film up in Canada, they refused. I mean, even though that would have saved them a lot of money to shoot the film up there, they said, no, we want everything about this movie to come across as something real, so it's got to be shot in location, it's got to be filmed here in Indiana. And then because this movie's about a time back in the early 1950s, the producers had to make sure that every part of every scene was true to the times. So that meant there could be no signs of the gas station reading unleaded gasoline because that kind of gas just wasn't sold back then. And that meant that there could be no advertisements hanging in the window saying Reebok tennis shoes available here because there was no Reebok back in that day. Chuck Taylor All-Stars, but no Reebok. And when they filmed the basketball games, they had to be really careful. There was no dunking, no dribbling between the legs because that wasn't a part of the game back then. They wanted this movie to be real, so every part of every scene had to be true to the times, from the clothes to the haircuts to the kind of cars they were driving, the kind of music they played, the kind of slang that the people used. The producers of this movie wanted it to be genuine, a true and accurate picture of what it was actually like to live in Indiana and to play basketball back in the early 1950s. Here's my question today. What does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? There's a lot of people who wear a name, but they don't play the game. There's a lot of people who made a decision for Jesus, but they've never followed through and gotten serious about living the life. So if you were to take an honest look of what it really means to enter into a relationship with Jesus, what it really means to belong to him, what would that life look like? I mean, if you were to get down to the core of what it really means to follow Jesus, what are you going to find? What does it take to be an authentic disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in the very last part of Luke chapter 14, but he answers it in kind of an interesting way. See, verse 25 will tell us that at this moment in time, there are huge crowds who are following Jesus. I mean, thousands of people are showing an interest in him. All kinds of people drawing near because they want to check him out. People have begun to recognize there's something rare and unique, something rare and special about this guy called Jesus, and they want to know more. I mean, they're definitely intrigued by it. So here's Jesus. He's got this giant pool of potential disciples. He's got thousands and thousands of prospects that he now has an opportunity to work with. What more could you want? And yet three different times in this scripture, three different times, Jesus turns around and says, you can't. You can't be one of my disciples. <laughs> you talk about killing the enthusiasm and shooting down the momentum and turning people off. I mean, that kind of talk is definitely going to turn the crowds away. So what in the world is Jesus doing? I mean, we know that Jesus wants people to follow him. It's the whole reason why he came to this world. He came here to draw near to us so we could draw near to him. Well, how exactly are you drawing the people in when three different times you tell them you can't be one of my disciples? What's going on? Well, understand there's two different ways you can say you can't. You can say can't, you can't because you don't have my permission. You can't because I won't let you. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says you can, he means you can't in the way that you're doing it right now. Following me is more than just going along with me. You know, just going along and kind of sitting back and watching what I do. I don't want spectators. I want recruits. Uh, following me is more than just hanging out with me. If you're really serious about being one of my disciples, you've got to be willing to get involved. You've got to be willing to make some changes. In other words, it's like a coach who's talking to this kid who's working hard to try to make the Olympic team. He wants to win a gold medal in wrestling. 
And yet the coach tells him, you can't. You can't do this. But he's not saying you can't because he's not going to give the kid a chance to even make the team. No, he wants to do everything he can to give this kid a shot. But the reason why the coach tells this young man, you can't do this, is because every day in the cafeteria, he notices how that young man sits down and eats nothing but Twinkies and M&Ms. And with a diet like that, the coach knows he's never going to qualify for the team. So in an effort to challenge him and to motivate him, the coach gets in his face and with some very strong language, he's trying to get this young man to wake up and realize, hey, if you're not ready to get serious about this, if you're not prepared to make some major changes in your eating habits and your training regimen, you, you can't pull this off. But do you see what he's doing? By telling him he can't, he's actually showing him how he can. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 14. He says, if you're really serious about following me, then you're going to have to do a whole lot more than what you're doing right now. You've got to do more than just hang out with me. You've got to do more than just be curious. You've got to be willing to make some commitments. Well, what kind of commitments? Let's take a look at our scripture. We're not going to look at all these verses. We're just going to look at a few of them, just kind of get a sense of what Jesus is talking about here. But let's start at Luke chapter, 20, or Luke chapter 14. And verse 25, notice what it says here. Now at this time, at this point in his ministry, the public ministry of Jesus, there are great crowds, thousands of people accompanying him, hanging out with him. They're hanging out with Jesus. But Jesus wants to let them know, you've got to do more and hang out with me if you really want to be my disciple. So he turns to them and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and hate his wife and children and hate his brothers and sisters and yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Oh, that's tough talk. That's kind of hard to swallow. What exactly does Jesus mean by this word hate? Well, keep this in mind. Jesus never contradicts himself. And we already know from other places in the Bible, Jesus has told us we need to honor our father and mother. He told us in other places that we need to love our enemies, not hate them, but love them. And the Lord made it really clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that if a man does not provide for his own fa family, then in the eyes of God, he's worse than an infidel. So I, God's big on family. He wants us to care, I mean, really care for those who are near to and dear to us. So when Jesus talks about hating, obviously he's not telling us to despise our family or to be mean to them or treat them with contempt. In fact, I contend, when you really give your heart to Jesus, it ought to make you a better husband and a better father and a better wife and a better mother and a more loving, obedient child than you've ever been before. So what exactly is Jesus getting at when he tells us that we're to love him and hate others? Well, consider how that same language is used elsewhere in the Bible. Genesis chapter 29, we read about a man by the name of Jacob, and we learn that Jacob has two wives, Leah and Rachel. And twice in that chapter, we read, and Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Hated Leah? What, what do you mean by that? I mean, you go back and you study the life of Jacob and you watch how Jacob actually treated Leah. He wasn't mean to her. He didn't curse her. He was never abusive. He was never actively hostile against her. In fact, the very opposite. He was always kind. In fact, as you watch that story move along over the years, you watch Jacob and his love for Leah. His love just keeps growing and he keeps becoming stronger and stronger. He was always very affectionate with her. But compared to the love that he had for Rachel, well, it just, it wasn't the same. The love that he had for Rachel was so great and so intense, it was obvious this one woman, Rachel, had a much stronger pull on his heart than the other woman did. See, it's not that they're, they're having a competition here. It's not that he's pitting one against the other. No, the Bible just simply says, when the Bible says he loved Rachel, he hated Leah, just creating a contrast. He's just saying this one woman had a much greater effect upon his heart than the other one did. 
So it is in the scripture. Jesus is not pitting himself against our families and saying, hey, it's either going to be me or them, but you can't have both. He's not saying that. What he is saying, out of all the loves that you have in your life, all the people that you love, your love for me has got to be the greatest of all. So that when you're making decisions and when you're establishing priorities in your life, I should be the biggest influence in that moment of decision. Or think of it like this. Think of the sun with the stars. You know, late at night, you see all the stars there in the sky, shining brightly, because the sun's not around. But during the day, even though the stars are still up there in the sky, they're still shining, but you don't see them anymore. Why? Because the light of the sun is so close, and the light of the sun is so bright, it outshines all the rest. It's like there's nothing up there but the sun. We know the others are still up there, but you can't see anything but the sun because it shines so brightly. So, what the Bible is saying here is that your love, when you become a Christian, it's not that you put away your love for your family and love only Jesus. No. Now, when you become a follower of Jesus, your love for your family becomes stronger than it ever has before, but your love for Jesus tops everything. It's the greatest love of all. And, like the sun, when your love really begins to shine for Jesus, really begins to brightly shine for Him, now that love for Him should shine on everyone else around you. Think how this works in your home. Say one night you're watching TV. You're watching this great ball game. You're really into the game because the score is close and you're wondering, oh, man, I wonder who's going to win this. And right in the middle of that game, your daughter comes up and taps you on the shoulder and said, Dad, I'm struggling. I'm having trouble with my homework. It's got to be done by tomorrow. Can you help me? Now, all of a sudden, you have a choice to make. Which love is going to take preference, your love for that game or your love for your daughter? Listen, even though it's not going to be a lot of fun to get out of that chair at that moment, Not going to be a lot of fun to leave the room and go to the other room and sit at the table and help her work through every one of those math problems. Yet because of your commitment to Jesus, because of the new priorities he's now established in your life, as important as that game is, it's not nearly as important as loving your daughter. So you give up the one for the other. You give up the game so you can help your girl. And in doing that, in making that choice, you're now letting Jesus shine through you. Here's how one person described it. I saw Jesus last week. He was wearing blue jeans and an old shirt. He was up at the church building, all alone, working hard. For just a minute, I thought that was our facility manager, but no, it wasn't him. It was Jesus. I could tell by the smile on his face and the energy with which he did his work, he wasn't just doing a job. He was up at that building because he wanted to serve the Lord. I saw Jesus last Sunday. He was teaching a Bible class. He didn't talk real loud or use long and hard to understand words, but you could tell he believed what he taught. For just a minute, I thought he looked like our Sunday school teacher, but no, it wasn't him. It was Jesus. I could tell by the love in his voice and the conviction in his heart. I saw Jesus yesterday. He was at the hospital visiting a friend, someone who was real sick and really depressed. They were praying together. And for just a minute, I thought that looked like one of the members from our church. But no, it it wasn't him. It was Jesus. I could tell by the tears in his eyes and the compassion in his touch. I saw Jesus this morning. He was in my kitchen making breakfast for me. For just a minute, I thought it looked like my mother. But no, it wasn't her. It was Jesus. I could tell because of the grace that came from her heart. And here's the point. If you're truly devoted to Jesus, I mean, if you're following him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then everybody around you is going to notice, especially your family, because now they're going to see Jesus in you. Now, I want to skip down to verses 28 and 30 to 33 
And take a look at these two stories that Jesus tells because making this commitment to be a follower of Jesus is not just a choice to love Jesus above everyone else. It's also a choice to allow Jesus to really, I mean, just really open up your life and allow Jesus to love you so that now his love has this transformative effect upon your heart. You remember how the Apostle Paul put it? Romans chapter 8, he says, we are more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. In other words, we can handle any challenge that comes our way if we're allowing God to work through our lives. Watch how that's brought out in these two stories. Verse 28, Jesus says, For which of you desiring to build a tower? Think of building a life. That's what he's talking about. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Now, most of the times we read this verse and we think, count the cost, we're thinking, okay, what's it going to take for me to be a disciple? Am I really serious about following Jesus? Will I be able to follow through and live the life, build a life, construct a life? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because when you become a Christian, you can't build that life. You're opening up and now allowing God to build that life through you. I think what Jesus is talking about here, sitting down and counting the cost. Okay, what if I don't follow Jesus? What if I choose to chart my own course and go my own way? Could I pull it off? Can I do life by myself? So, think of it in those terms. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, desiring to build a life, a meaningful life, does not first sit down and count the cost? Hey, do I have enough to complete it? Hey, I'm a pretty great guy. I got a lot of things going for me. You know what? I think I can do this. So he begins on the project, verse 29. He's laid a foundation, and then all of a sudden, about halfway through, he can't finish because he didn't have what it takes. And all who see this begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but I'm not able to finish, because you can't do life by yourself. Same story, same point being made in the second story, verse 31. What king going out to encounter another king in war? In this life, life is tough. Let's be honest, it's very demanding. There are challenges to face, hurdles to cross. There's always going to be battles to fight. Can you win the fight? Well, this king thinks so by himself. You know, he's got another king coming to do war with him. Well, he sits down and begins to deliberate. What kind of resources do I have working with? Well, I got an army of 10,000 men. Man, who can beat this? How about an army of 20,000? <laughs> All of a sudden, he realizes the odds are against him, and he's overwhelmed, and I'm not going to win. Man, I was foolish to try this by myself. So verse 32, if not, while he sees the other great while, doesn't he send out a de delegation and ask for terms of peace? Hey, before we fight, can we make some other arrangements here? That's what Jesus is encouraging. Verse 33, therefore, if any of you does not renounce your pride and your arrogance and admit, I can't do it on my own, I need God. If you're not willing to, to admit your, your need to depend upon him, then Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. So what do we have here? We have two stories. One, a, a, a man who's blinded by his prosperity and the other, a man blinded by his power. One man trying really hard to become a success. I want to build a tower and make a name for myself. And another man working really hard to establish a sense of security. I'm going to build up my assets. And man, I've got it made because I've got enough resources working for me here. The one guy, he's, he's, hey, look at all the money I got. I think I can build this tower. I want to achieve something so everybody else will applaud and admire and say, wow, wasn't that guy something? So he feels like he can pull this off, and yet he gets halfway through the project, and he runs out of, money, uh, out of money, and he realizes his wealth was not sufficient. And the point of the story, to rely on your own resources and leave God out of the picture, that's a foolish way to live. And no doubt, as Jesus is telling this story, the people, the crowd, they're sitting there thinking to themselves, we've heard this story before. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. 
I mean, here was this giant collaborative project. Here was a point in time where the entire community came together. They united together, but they united without God. They were going to build the world's first skyscraper. They're going to build this monument to themselves, a tower that would reach all the way to the sky. It'd be their own personal shrine so that for generations to come, people would look back and say, wow, weren't those people something? Look what they did. And yet, Genesis, and, and they're doing this. Remember, the Bible says, Genesis chapter 11, we're doing this to make a name for ourselves, not to make a name for God, but to make a name for ourselves. But the Bible makes it really clear, Genesis chapter 11, a tower like that doesn't last. A tower like that is doomed to fail. To rely on your own resources and leave God out of the picture, you're not going to succeed. Lasting success comes only when you learn to depend upon God, because only God can create a life that's going to last for all eternity. Well, the first man's blinded by his prosperity. The second man's blinded by his power. I got some battles to fight. What do I have to work with there? Man, look at my resources. I got 10,000 guys on my side. Man, who could beat this? Well, how about an army of 20,000? And again, as the crowd's sitting here listening to Jesus tell their story, they're thinking, we've heard this before too, all the way through the Old Testament. How many times have we watched Israel? How many times have we watched Judah go out to fight about and say, hey God, we don't need you this time. You helped us before, but I don't think we're going to need you today. We can handle this. And every time they went out, they suffered a humiliating defeat. Jesus is saying, give up the pride. Give up the arrogance. Recognize your need for God. You're not going to make it unless you depend upon Back in the 1950s, when the Mennonites were migrating from Europe to Central America, moving from Germany to Belize, the nation of Belize, the people there in the land of Belize got really leery. They were really suspicious. This is the 1950s, just a decade after World War II, just a decade after the Nazis had thrown the entire world into chaos. And even though those German Mennonites didn't look like Nazis and they didn't act like Nazis, but they did come from Germany, so the people in Belize got really nervous. Hey, why are you wanting to move here? Come and live and stay here. What exactly do you have in mind? So because of all their suspicions, they said, well, if you're going to live here, you can't have this and you can't have this. You can only have this. And they only offered them the most unproductive part of the land, the property nobody else wanted. It was a total wreck. So, hey, if they wreck it, they can't do any damage. And the Mennonites agreed. Turned out to be a brilliant decision because you see the Mennonites were people of faith and because of their faith they had this incredible work ethic. So over the years they took this land that seemed to have no promise and no potential and they transformed it into the most productive, fruitful part of the entire nation. In fact today over 60% of the natural resources that come out of the nation of Belize come from, comes from the land that is owned and operated by the Mennonites. You see the, the part of the country that nobody wanted to have anything to do with, the property that nobody wanted to, to, to buy, has now become the most valuable land in the entire nation. Now, a lot of people look at a story like that, and you can look at that just in a horizontal level and say, well, the lesson's pretty clear, isn't it? It's not what you have, it's what you do with what you have. It's a human tale of human ingenuity, and you'd be wrong. It was God who was a part of the question. It was God who made the difference here. You see, the Mennonites realized the only way we can make this risky move from Europe to Central America, from Germany to Belize, is by putting our faith in God. And the only way we're going to be able to take on this enormous challenge where we're stuck, once we get to Belize, now we're stuck with this land that seems to have no promise, no potential. The only way we're going to pull this off is by putting our faith in God. And because those German Mennonites really believed, Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Meaning what? Meaning once he's got our heart, he's going to have a hand in everything we do. Once he's transformed this life, he'll transform everything we work with. So they took on the challenge because they were willing to put their faith in him. So it is with this commitment that we're making today. We're taking on a huge challenge here, but we're taking on this challenge because we believe in the Lord. I mean, we want to show our community and we want to show our world. We're not here by accident. We're here because we've been called by God. We've been chosen by God to serve in this time and this place. And look at all that God has given us to work with. A 40-acre campus in this building and all these other assets sitting here on this property. Now the point is, what are we going to do with what he's given to us? It's time to take this old building and transform it into something new. And in making it something new, we're going to let our community see when God has this, he has a hand in everything we do. When God transforms our lives, he'll transform everything we work with. You see, we're making this commitment today because we want our world to know we are serious about following Jesus. We want to make a difference for him. Let's pray.